You are now listening to Films for the Void. Episode number two. I am your host, Landon DeFever, and joining me as always is my wonderful cohort and co-host, the fantastic Eric Spitz. Eric, how have you been doing lately? I have been doing great. How have you been doing, Landon? I've been doing really well. Uh, yeah, nothing super crazy has... Wait, what am I saying? Yes, something did crazy happen. Uh, I am happy to announce that I got my first dose of the COVID vaccine. Ooh, nice. Yeah, Moderna gang, rise up. Uh, it feels good to uh, be one step closer to uh, doing things that I haven't done since February 2020. So it's been really excited. I'm I'm excited. Um, obviously, two weeks after the fr- after the second dose is initiated, I'm just I don't know. I'm really excited at the prospect of just seeing friends in person this summer. Maybe going to the movies more often. Uh, I honestly have not seen a movie in theaters since February 2020. I don't know what was the last movie you saw in theaters by the way um so it was right before oscars and i believe it was little women oh yeah you told me that yeah yeah and it's so funny because i feel it was so fitting because (laughs) i i went to the theater with my brother and i'm rushing him along the whole time like no we need to get a great seat like it's gonna be packed you know before the oscars and stuff (laughs) (laughs) and i go there and i shit you not we were the only ones in there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, that is the best feeling when you're the only person in a movie theater. It is such a freeing feeling. I love it. Um, when I had Movie Pass back in, um, when I first moved back, when I first moved to Jackson uh, in July 2017, I was. Uh, that's when Movie Pass announced they were going from thir- I think thirty twenty to thirty dollars a month down to ten dollars a month, and I signed up for it. Kind of skeptical of the program itself. But I signed up for it, and obviously we know how that story ended with MoviePass, but uh, that was the greatest year of my life, because obviously, like, in Jackson, Michigan, there's absolutely nothing to do. It's cool that you're so close to everything in the state, like, anything is basically a 30 to 40 minute drive. But at the same time, though, in actual Jackson, there really isn't much to do. So I was going to movies like two or three times a week, just like completely seeing anything I wanted to, basically. And it was really nice because I could, after I get out of work at five, uh, this happened a lot, actually, when uh, you and I were going to Trivia and Lansing pre-COVID, because I would get out of work, I would run to the movie theater, I'd see a movie and just kind of hang out and watch a movie and then immediately go up to Jackson for trivia. So it was the best feeling to be able to sit in an empty theater, not doing anything, and then immediately go to another fun thing. And that is kind of why I'm so excited about getting vaccinated is that I miss life being an immediate fun thing to the next fun thing instead of your days just kind of blending together and feeling the same. I don't know how you feel about how kind of how COVID has impacted your life, but It was actually a week ago, it will be a week ago tomorrow that I signed up for my first dose of the vaccine through the Sparrow website, and the earliest I could get in was April 28th, and the site kept crashing on me. I kept having to reload it and deal with that whole thing, but I was like, okay, at least I have something scheduled. And I was excited for that, even though it is a little further out, I'm like, well, it's probably the best I can do, but... Oh, yeah, totally. Still, like, even getting in at the end of April, it still really helps to be 
for the fact that you're going to be still like you'll still have like I don't know, like mid June till the end of the summer. So you'll still have like some chances to like, I don't know, like still go out, maybe get drinks, hang out with people that have also been vaccinated, like maybe go see a movie. Like, I don't know, like have more potential to just, I don't know, than just being stuck inside at all points. Obviously still paying mine to like social distancing and wearing masks, but I don't know. It just makes me, it just gives me a little more confidence and it makes me feel a lot better to just be a lot less vulnerable. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. But I actually got super lucky today because I randomly got a text. So one of my mom's coworkers, her husband works at CATA and, you know, they had, you know, everybody getting vaccinated there and stuff. But then they uh, had an excess supply of their vaccines and it was just like a first come first serve basis. And literally like, you don't even, you know, because it's originally just for employees, but they opened it up to hey, if you want the vaccine, come on by and, you know, fill it out and stuff. So literally, I just went over there, fill out the form, everything checked out. So uh, I got my first dose of the uh, Fauci ouchie today. <laughs> I know. And let me tell you, as someone that has already gotten their first dose, you barely feel the microchip. Like there's not like that's the only <laughs> real downside is that like you, you feel a prick and it's over. And they told me, I don't know, they whispered resistance is futile and hail Hydra and all that good stuff after. But I mean, like, I don't know. It, it feels good. to I don't know. I feel I feel more confident, you know, <laughs> I completely forgot about the microchip till now. That's why I've been. Yeah, that explains so much right now. I know. <laughs> it's it. I don't know. Regardless, it's a good feeling for sure. <laughs> no, it is. And it's, yeah, like I said, I mean, just a huge weight lifted off my shoulders with that because, you know, I, I wasn't expected to get even the first dose till the end of April. And then now they, they're like, okay, you know, we got to come back in two weeks. So I'm already getting the second dose on, you know, April 12th. So I'm like, that's even before I even thought I'd get the first dose. So I'm like, I'm pretty stoked right now. <laughs> Yeah, I full on was not expecting to get picked as quick as I was. I mean, I'm pre-diabetic and I am obese in the eyes of the like American health system, I guess. But I mean, I I don't know, like sometimes you got to take what you can get. But uh, I don't know. I wasn't expecting it. I just was assuming that it wasn't going to be opened up so quickly. So it's nice to know that there is a increasing supply and that like restrictions are getting a little more lax as far as like who can get one, who can't. So that that's been really nice for sure. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I agree completely. Like, I was totally surprised by that, too. I, I didn't expect to get it until, well, originally, I didn't even expect to get it till like, July, based on the timelines with stuff, and that I've been working from home the whole time, and then, you know, they're allowing mm -hmm. people to sign up early, and then I got in end of April, um, but then, you know, had an opportunity, and I just like, well, I, I can't really turn this down. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> I was in the same boat. Um, also, um, we did, we touched on this earlier, but because you said the last movie you saw in theaters, like the last movie I saw in theaters was um, the photograph at Mall of America, actually, because I was waiting for my flight back to Lansing because I went to go see Motion City Soundtrack three times in Minneapolis with my friend Tyler Common. And his flight, he was flying into Detroit. I was flying into Lansing. So I was just at the Mall of America, just not doing anything. And I just needed to kill some time. So I saw the photograph and that I had no idea that was going to be the last movie I saw. And I'm also a little sad because um, the last two movies I saw prior to that were Sonic the day before, literally in Minnesota. And then before it was actually Cats with you on January 1st. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> that was such a great experience. That was uh, talk about like being the only one in the theater. Like we were the only people in the theater for Cats on the first day of the best year of our lives. 
<laughs> it was it was so good, so magical. Yeah. Um, but speaking of movies, uh, that's as good of a segue as any. Uh, <laughs> the Oscar nominations came out this past week, and I thought it would be a little fun to go over some of the bigger categories. Um, to start us off, Eric, what have you seen so far this Oscar season? So it's funny because I was digging through the Oscar-nominated movies, and I've come to realize I have not seen much, unfortunately. I think, you know, with the pandemic and with COVID and everything, it's kind of thrown a lot off for me for not having movie theater experiences and then I get distracted a lot with prioritizing other movies at home and stuff but um but yeah from the list that I was looking through I mean the the big one that I'm really excited about is another round I mean that was my favorite film from 2020 and so I was excited to see Thomas Vinterberg nominated for best director yeah holy shit I was the, that was the biggest surprise out of this entire crop of nominees like and the biggest compliment I could pay the Oscars this year I was fully not expecting that I thought that fifth slot was going to go to Aaron Sorkin for the trial of Chicago 7 but it uh I don't know and I, I don't even hate the trial of Chicago 7 but like another round is such a well-directed movie and I love Thomas Vinterberg uh the celebration is such a good movie and the hunt is I've heard is amazing and it, I, I'm gonna watch it this year for the first time but yeah, another round like completely blew me away, and it, it, I agree, it is also my favorite movie of the year, so it was cool to see him get nominated. Yeah, for sure, and then in terms of just other things I've seen, it, it's not like nominated for Best Picture or anything, but um, Terrence Blickhard nominated for Original Score and Defy Bloods, um, and I really love that one too, so it was kind of cool to see that nod for him. Yeah, um, kind of surprised that Defy Bloods didn't get more love this season because I, know, I know, know Netflix was putting more of a promotional campaign into Mank, which got 10 nominations. So obviously that was successful. But uh, Delroy Lindo, I was kind of surprised, didn't get a nomination because he's easily, even though I'm not crazy about Defy Bloods, I still think he his performance is easily the best thing about that movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, no, and I, and it's um, it's funny because... I thought that, like, for a little while, the length kind of, I don't want to say it deterred me, but it was one of those things like, oh, I, I really want to watch it on, like, a Friday or on the weekend. It's it's not really a weekday movie for me just because it's in that close to a little two-plus hour range, almost pushing two and a half hours, I almost want to say. But so I, I did it on a Friday night one time, and it, it did not feel long at all to me. Like, it the pacing was really good, and um, it, it drew me right in. I thought the performances are great. The story was awesome. Um, yeah, really... It really captured me, for sure. Good, good. Uh, looking at the nominees, uh, other cool things. Uh, Riz Ahmed for Best Actor. Uh, obviously, that was going to be a given, but uh, Riz's performance is one of my favorites of the year, so it was great to see him. Also, great to see Sound of Metal getting a lot of stuff across, nominations across the board in general was really great. Uh, got nominated for Picture, Supporting Actor, Actor, Screenplay, uh, and then uh, they combined sound editing and sound mixing into one award this year. Uh, I'm assuming it's going to win because it, it is a masterclass of sound editing with both like the experience, like obviously like I'm not deaf, so I can't speak to this, but creating that sort of feeling of of being deaf and uh, and also like the kind of experience of what it's like to have a cochlear implant, uh, I thought really makes you like put you in the experience of of Riz's character and yeah that that is easily like one of the biggest accomplishments of the year so it's great to see that get recognized yeah no so towards the top of my list of ones I still need to see um are Nomadland, Sound of Metal, Mank, Soul, Minari, and My Octopus Teacher 
Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, the the best documentary. I'm actually going to talk about um, my uh, one of the best the my favorite documentary of that group in our next segment. But uh, yeah, uh, there's a, a few films I still want to see. Um, I'm my goal is to watch every film nominated for some sort of an acting nomination. The only movie I still have to see out of the Best Picture nominees is The Father, which is only in theaters right now, and I believe expands to. Oh, I believe it expands to VOD on the 26th. So by the time this episode airs, it'll be out. It's only in theaters right now, um, but I'm not going to a theater, at least until I'm vaccinated fully. So I'm going to try and catch that sooner than later. I have seen everything else, though. Um, Sound of Metal and Judas and the Black Messiah are my two favorites of the uh, eight, eight, question mark? Eight nominated, yeah. But yeah, and then um, other things I'm excited about. Speaking of Judas, I... Loved that both Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield got nominations for both of their performances. Something that somebody, a few people have pointed out was Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield got nominated for Judas and the Black Messiah. Those are literally the two characters. Lakeith is Judas and Daniel is the Black Messiah. So who is the lead in that movie? (laughs) (laughs) So true. Yeah, so that was funny. I loved that Wolfwalkers got a Best Animated Feature nomination it's more than likely going to lose to soul, which is also a good movie, but Wolf Walkers was definitely my favorite of the five. Yeah. Aside from that. And then yeah, sound of metals, technical Oscars. I'm really glad that it got. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with this, especially in a year where obviously like the entertainment industry has had a downturn of movies coming out regularly. And a lot of projects got put on hold because they want their day in theaters and want people to get the full experience of seeing a movie when it's safe. Uh, I was actually pretty happy with these. I don't hate any of the... Uh, the only movie I don't really like out of the Best Picture nominees is Promising Young Woman. I, I don't see what people see in that movie, honestly. I, I I honestly think that movie would have been passed over easily if it was not sort of a down year. Uh, everything else, though, I don't really have many complaints. Uh, Mank, I was underwhelmed by, but I understand why it is doing well and people like it and connect with it. But aside from that, nothing super egregious. I mean, there's no Green Books or Bohemian Rhapsodies in there, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally fair. Um, well, something I was kind of surprised by personally um, is because uh, Maria Baklava was nominated for Actress in a Supporting Role, and the new Borat was nominated for Writing for Adapted Screenplay. And maybe it's just me, but I was not a big fan of the new Borat, personally. I was not either. I was really disappointed with it. That, that's not to say that that movie doesn't have good moments and good sort of, I don't know, like good commentary on certain things. There is one joke in the first five minutes of the movie that I had to pause my laptop that I was watching it on because I was laughing so hard. And that was the only joke in the whole movie that made me do that, where in the first Borat, there are there's a moment like that every two or three minutes and it's an 80 minute movie. So yeah. And, and it's crazy because Borat, in my opinion, is one of the best, com- uh, the best comedies of the last 15 years or so. No, I, uh, yeah, I, and I agree completely with um like the, the first Borat and original one. I, I loved it so much and quoted it all the time. It's still extremely relevant and it's, it's hard to describe because I almost feel like the new one, obviously it's still edgy. There's still some jokes that worked really well, but it was almost like a, too little too late almost in my opinion like I almost feel like some of it was just them trying to beat a dead horse <laughs> yeah I I don't know it's it's hard to remain as 
relevant and, I don't know, culturally sharp and timeless as the first Borat was because in the elevated sort of Twitter news cycle that we work through, it's kind of hard to stay as relevant and shocking as the first one was because, I don't know, like the first one just was caught at a certain moment where like, obviously like Borat could get away with much more as a character because Borat was not as widely known across the United States as he is today. And they even kind of address that in the new film where basically like in the first 15 minutes, like he basically is called out. Oh my gosh, it's Borat. Hi, hi. And they kind of address that sort of thing. So he has to dress up as new characters, which aren't as entertaining or funny. And I don't know, like, I feel like it is a nice effort, but um, and Maria um, Bakalova does a really, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Does a really great job and holds her own, especially next to Sasha Baron Cohen. But yeah, I agree. I'm just I wasn't as keen on it as some of my other friends were. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I felt about it too. Like, um, I mean, to your point, I mean, I, I wasn't laughing nearly as as hard as I was. It wasn't quite as shocking as the original was. And you you brought up a lot of good points there. I think the shock factor kind of wears down once you kind of know what it's it's going into and you they set the bar pretty high with the original so it's it's hard to follow that up and then also too you have to add in the layer to where he's more recognizable now and that takes away from it too so i get it in that sense and um and and yeah i mean there's there's a lot, you know, that they I think they took a good approach with it, given the circumstance, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of jokes and things that you can make during this time. And he pretty much goes after all of that right now. <laughs> so I, you know, I I, I I don't disagree with like his approach necessarily or anything. Uh, it just didn't mesh as well with me as the as the original. I guess I'm not up in arms and saying that I, I disagree with those nominations. It just didn't mesh as well as the original did with uh, for me anyway. Yeah, because I fully think that Sasha Baron Cohen should have been nominated for Best Actor the year that it came out, um, especially when all of your work, it like 90% of your work is improvised off the top of your head sort of stuff it makes it really hard to ignore that kind of a performance where um i don't know and the screenplay got nominated in 2006 that's why i kind of corrected myself earlier but i don't know i feel like it's weird to see like more respect for the film now than i think the first one may have been given back in 2006 um and even then that's not to say that it doesn't it didn't get that sort of respect because it was incredibly popular and super quotable, but I don't know as far as that, like sort of Academy recognition, I guess that's kind of where I'm coming from, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, I think there's a conversation to be had about something like that. Oh, for sure. And, um, one thing I was just going to add real quick too. um, I was really excited to see if anything happens, I'd love you get some, uh, recognition for short films. And it did, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It, um, yeah, I got, it's nominated. Okay, good, good, yeah. Uh, it's it's in, in the short film nominations, but I remember watching that on Netflix, and it's, yeah, it's it's an emotional ride, even though it's only, like, 12 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, especially if you go into that short not knowing a thing about it, it makes the overall experience that more impactful. Yeah, so check that out on Netflix if people haven't seen it. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, it's only like 12 minutes, so not a not a not a long investment at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I agree. <laughs> Um, do we have anything else we want to say about Oscar stuff? Uh, I think I covered my bases for Oscar nominations. Uh, yeah, like I said, unfortunately, I, I there's still a lot on my watch list that I need to see. Um, but of the ones I have seen, um, yeah, I kind of added my two cents. And 
I'm excited to see all the other ones that are getting a lot of recognition, like like Mank. Mank's been on my list for a while to see, and it's sweeping the floor in categories right now for nominations. <laughs> totally, yeah. I'm excited. Uh, maybe when you've caught up, and when we've both caught up, honestly, because there are a few I need to watch still. Uh, maybe when we've both caught up, we can like on a future episode, we can before the Oscars, we can talk about like which ones we like liked, didn't like for whichever reasons. Yeah, no, I agree with that. All right. So I think we're ready to move on to the movies we've watched segment, uh, which if you're joining us for the first time every week, uh, well, every episode, Eric and I are basically going to take some time to talk about some of the movies we've watched over the last two weeks since we last chatted. So Eric, I think you had more to talk about than I do, so why don't you start? I know it's a it's a rare occurrence, but um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um <laughs> first one I watched was Crazy Stupid Love. Came out in twenty eleven, uh directed by Glenn Ficaro and John Requa. Hope I'm pronouncing all of that right. Middle aged husband has his world turned upside down when his wife asks for a divorce, so he seeks to rediscover his manhood with the help of his newfound friend Jacob and learn how to pick up girls at the bar. And normally I would kind of shy away from movies like this, they're just kind of not really my thing, but I was pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, I thought it was really well done for its genre. The humor was a bit darker than I expected at times, it was clever, heartwarming, uh, had an amazing cast with Steve Carell, Julianne Moore, Ron Gosling. Emma Stone, Kevin Bacon. Uh, it's just a really fun watch of a of a genre I'm just not as well versed in or don't really go towards too often. So it was a good shakeup watch. Yeah. Um, no, Crazy Stupid Love is honestly one of my favorite comedies of the last 20 years or so. And the, enti- the entire reason of why like that movie can be summed up in a scene towards like the two-third mark or so and I think you will know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to spoil it because if you haven't seen it, the joy is getting to experience this scene completely blind for the first time. And it's basically a scene um, in a backyard. You'll know what I'm talking about where there are three through line plots in this movie and all of them intersect in this incredible scene where a huge fight breaks out and it is one of my favorite scenes in any comedy ever. And I cannot get enough of that scene and it completely skyrocketed my rating. If that scene wasn't in the movie, I probably would give it like an eight out of 10, but that scene makes the film a nine because it's so subversive and unique and hilarious. So I'm glad you liked it. (laughs) No, I I agree completely. And um, yeah, not to spoil anything you just talked about, but I remember as all of that was happening, I kept doing like a pulse check and I was just like, (laughs) there's still quite a bit left of this movie. What is going on? (laughs) I know. And it's crazy too, because I was really hesitant when I saw this movie in theaters because I was like, oh, wow. Okay. This completely just shook up the entire narrative. How is this going to, how could this possibly get resolved? And it actually does kind of tie itself up in a nice little bow. Um, I don't know how you felt about, like, the whole ending. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, they, they tie a lot of loose ends. You know, some they don't answer everything necessarily, but I think they they resolve what they need to resolve, I'd say. Yeah, for at least, like, the bow is pretty enough to leave, a, leave the story be, and then there's probably stuff lingering under the surface but for the sake of leaving the film i think there's enough of a satisfactory close yeah i would agree with that 
Um, so what was the first one you watched? So the first movie I decided to check out was uh, The World's a Little Blurry, which is a new documentary about pop star Billie Eilish that basically covers her brother, her and her brother Phineas as they go through the making of her hit record, When We Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go?, into the hectic touring schedule and Grammy wins that followed. Um, now, before I talk about this, Eric, what do you think of Billie Eilish's music in general? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I definitely don't hate it. Uh, I've I've listened to more of her, you know, obviously I'm familiar with her popular stuff, and I've I've listened to, to the album once or twice, I'd say, but not enough to actually be able to, you know, recognize and distinguish the deep cuts. But from what I've heard, I... I like it. I legitimately do. I think she's a very talented musician for sure and, and deserves all the recognition she's been getting. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. Uh, going into this, I definitely liked the new record, When We All Fall Asleep. When We Fall Asleep uh, was a really solid record from 2019. So I was naturally excited going into this documentary and I think there's a lot to enjoy about it, honestly. I think the presentation of the documentary is great, as is the pacing. Uh, this film is 140 minutes, which almost scared me off and made me almost not check it out because it's like, okay, two, that's two and a half hours. That is a long ass movie. And not to say like, I don't watch long movies in general, but like, I don't know. It, I have to be really invested in it. I have to be like really interested in the subject and kind of have to plan out my day a little bit before I just kind of sit down casually and watch a movie that long. But honestly, it covers a lot of ground and sets up a lot of interesting threads like Billy's companionship with her brother, who is also her companion when songwriting and producing a lot of her music. And uh, it kind of covers a lot of her struggles with Tourette syndrome and the exhaustion of touring and stuff. And I don't know, the concert sequences are well shot and the film allows for a lot of really intimate moments and behind the scenes sort of looks at what was going on with the making of the record. And yeah, all in all, it's a really solid piece. I think if you have Apple TV, it is definitely worth springing, at least for the free trial. But I think you can get like a year long free trial of Apple TV if you haven't signed up for it already. So uh, yeah, give it a watch. It's it's really good. It's I It's easily my favorite movie of 2021 right now. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that one out because I've I've gone on some rabbit holes of actually watching some Billie Eilish interviews just because I think she's an interesting person in general. And mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, like it's it's so funny because I remember in one of her interviews, she referenced Fruitville Station. She said it was her favorite movie. So it actually made me watch Fruitville Station. This was a little. While oh, no ago, kidding. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I added it to my list and I eventually watched it and I was like, yeah, this, this is, this is some good stuff. This is powerful. Yeah. Fruitvale Station's awesome. I, that's a, honestly a movie I might recommend someday for like a full length discussion. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot to pick apart in that movie for sure. Um, oh, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but no, give it that, yeah. give that doc a, um, give uh, the world's a little blurry watch though. If that's something that seems like it would be up your alley. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we'll do. So um, the second movie I watched was Shivers. It came out in 1975. So I follow the Criterion Collection on Instagram and they did a post on Monday the 15th wishing David Cronenberg a happy birthday and said to check out Scanners, The Brood, Shivers and Stereo on the Criterion channel that we're currently streaming. So I was like, this is a great way to celebrate his birthday because I love David Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> And nice. um, that yeah. was one that I had not seen at that point. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw this on tonight. And like I said, came out in 1975. So it was some of his early work, but it had a lot of those Cronenberg classic elements to it as well. The body horror um, elements to it. 
and uh, I guess the shocking imagery and things like that. So it's the basic premise of it is so the residents of a suburban suburban high rise apartment are being infected by a strain of parasites that turned them into mindless sex crazed fiends out to infect others by impulsive sexual contact. So it was a, a very interesting watch for sure. Yeah, like I said, it was it was admirable for sure. A ton of elements of his of what he generally does in movies and what he's primarily known for. It's not his best work, I would say, personally, from what I've seen. Um, just because I think Fly and Videodrome are just top tier, but it's still it's still it's still worth recommending for sure. Uh, especially if you have the Criterion channel, just throwing it on. It's not a very long one and it's just kind of a fun wild ride. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's funny you mention uh, David Cronenberg because I've only seen two Cronenberg films being... The Fly has been on my watch list for a long time and I play, I'm play. i probably going to watch it around Halloween this year. But it's funny you mention Cronenberg because the two Cronenbergs I have seen are Videodrome and Scanners, both of which we have watched pre-COVID before as like basically ones that you've recommended. So that's funny that it kind of worked out that you re- would recommend another Cronenberg <laughs> on the podcast. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll recommend I'll recommend Cronenberg all day. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> his stuff is great, and it's it's yeah, it's definitely a lot of parallels you, that you can draw right now. And I don't know if it's helping my anxiety much at all throwing his on because they're all to the deal with like body horror and crazy you know infections going on and you know not much different than the world we're <laughs> living in right yeah. now <laughs> i know it's funny to see stuff like films by people like cronenberg who kind of had the foresight to obviously not get the extremes right but like those subtle little details about what future society would become is kind of interesting to kind of analyze a little bit too all right so what's uh what else have you been watching I watched Drag Me to Hell. I rewatched Drag Me to Hell. My friend Janine, uh, who you can follow at Blood Rage, an X between Blood and Rage, and an A, and the A in Rage is an X, uh, hosted her first movie night via Twitter, basically where some of her followers synced up the movie at the same time, and we all just kind of riffed and chatted over it, sort of thing. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I had a really good time. And this was actually my first rewatch of Drag Me to Hell, which I haven't seen since 2009 when it initially came out. So I was anxious to see how it would hold up, and honestly, it's still a lot of fun in that campy Sam Raimi sort of way. Uh, This is a much-welcome return to form after Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3 was a disappointment to a lot of people. And outside of executive producing the 2013 Evil Dead remake, this is the last horror movie-related project that Raimi directed as far as films go. And it's been 12 years since then, so it's kind of it was kind of cool to kind of see where Raimi's roots sort of came from, but not the, not from an evil dead sort of standpoint. And for those who are unfamiliar, drag me to hell is about a lone officer named Christine, who is up for a competitive promotion at work. And uh, to try and make a good impression on her boss, she denies an extension on a loan to this old woman. And as a result, the woman am- ambushes her in the parking lot that she's leaving, uh, takes a button from her jacket, and places a curse on her that uh, basically she finds will take her to hell unless she lifts it. So um, they, basically the film drips Raimi's classic sort of horror style. The film is very much reminiscent of the first two Evil Dead films. And it's probably the hardest PG-13 I've ever seen a film get for violence specifically. There. 
It's weird because there isn't much blood in the theatrical cut, but there's a lot of bodily fluids and squeamish gross moments that make really big impacts. So any film that can do that and really stretch a PG-13 is really impressive in my book. So uh, the performances are good. It's interestingly shot. The ending is one of the most satisfying endings I've personally ever seen in a horror film. Uh, so yeah, give this a watch. Uh, its strengths definitely outweighs its flaws. The only thing I would recommend is watch the theatrical cut if you can get it. The unrated cut doesn't add anything to the experience of the original film aside from just adding some gore and stuff like that, which would easily have passed for an R rating if they wanted to go that route. But the CGI in the unrated cut is very shoehorned in and it kind of took me out of the moment. I was kind of bummed out by that, but the core film in the truest sense of the word, I think is just is well done and a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's actually really funny because when I worked at family video back in the day, uh, I remember drag me to hell was in like the two for one section. And I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or anything, but every time I saw it, I was just like, <laughs> uh, it looks like just a cheesy campy, like B horror movie. And I just never really cared to like give it a chance. But then, you know, as I get using letterbox and stuff more, I see some people posting about it and I'd look it up and I was like, actually it's got decent ratings. So then I've been yeah. kind of like intrigued by it ever since. So uh, I may have to give that one a watch for sure. Yeah. Give it a watch. It definitely, um, the, the don't judge a book by its cover, uh, motif, I think definitely works in this case. I think it is a lot smarter and more suspenseful than I think uh, most people should give it credit for. And I think Raimi, when he's on, is a really strong director. Uh, the first two Spider-Man films, all three Evil Dead films, including Army of Darkness, I think are all really good and fun, solid horror movies. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, it's definitely better than it looks, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, definitely. So what do you what do you have next? Yeah, so um, next one I watched was Mask. Uh, came out in 1985, directed by Peter uh, Bogdanovich. Not to be confused with Chuck Russell's The Mask, the Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> yeah, that, that was mask. something. I when I when I saw you logged that on Letterboxd, I had to do a double take. Oh, mask, not the mask, <laughs> just mask in general. Okay, <laughs> I had to clarify that one. I mean, once I started explaining the plot, you'd be like, Jim Carrey wasn't in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, it was uh, so I I bought the DVD of it forever yo and it's funny because when quarantine first started uh, my brother joel and i created a stack of movies that we owned that we've never seen and put them in a stack by the tv and just like okay while we're on quarantine let's work our way through these movies that we own that we've never even opened or watched or anything and slowly but surely we've been actually finally going through the stack and uh, mask is one of the last ones in it but it's in that original quarantine stack so <laughs> we sat down finally did it and basic premise is that Roy Rocky Dennis played by Eric Stoltz was born with a rare deformity that causes his face to look extremely abnormal but he's a very bright sweet and normal kid otherwise and um no I I slept on this one for so long for quarantine and stuff I mean I always knew it was it was a pretty decent movie and yeah I was absolutely blown away by it like I loved every minute of it and I was kind of surprised with, with the average I guess reviews on Letterboxd after I logged it like I mean not that they were bad but I just thought it I don't know deserved more credit than what they were giving it yeah <laughs> but um no I thought it was I thought it was great the performances were awesome um yeah Eric Stoltz killed it as the as the protagonist Cher was great in it 
Um, oh yeah, Cher is in that movie. I forgot about that. Yeah, I know, and it's it, it it got me thinking too. Like I I keep forgetting like how big her resume is for films because I was just like I was I got thinking about it, and she's been in quite a bit. I mean, granted, stuff I haven't seen, but I got looking at her lists on Letterboxd and. She has a pretty decent film resume. It's really <laughs> funny you say that because in May 2019, I actually went to go see Cher in Grand Rapids. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because, yeah, I um, I saw Cher. My friend James had an extra ticket because he was doing press for the show. And we went to a small show at the stash. We went to go see uh, the, the, the stash show was, oh, God, it was Seaway, Free Throw, Young Culture, Heart Attack Man, and maybe one local. I can't remember. But basically, we stayed for Young Culture and Heart Attack Man, and then we walked over to the Van Andel Arena, which is down the street. We saw Cher, and it was an amazing show. The light show was specifically was great. Like, I, I don't really go to a lot of shows that have dancers on stage. I usually don't go to, like, really, really big shows unless I can get comped or it's an artist I really love. But that was such a unique experience. And it made me want to go back through a lot of Cher. I added so many films to my watch list after I saw that, after I went to that show. Because, yeah, she's in Moonstruck, she's in Mask, like you mentioned, she's in Burlesque, like, and it was cool because the show itself was so tailored to her career in general, because, like, it was very segmented into the eras of Cher, because Cher has been very active her entire life, she has always done something, re like, at least one really big thing each decade, so she's never really gone away and I mean, like she had her, I mean, arguably she had her biggest hit with Believe in the 90s, which is kind of surprising too. So she's like stayed relevant for so long, just doing so many different things. So, and I don't mean to go on down, down a share rabbit hole, but yeah, when you said that, it reminded me that, uh, yeah, there were some mass clips in that, in that, uh, in that performance that she had. So that, that's cool to have that, have that unearthed a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I honestly think you'd really like it. I mean, it's, um. It's it's a little on the longer side, not terribly long. It's it's over that two hour mark, and I think that's why I probably put it on the back burner for a little while. But no, like the pacing's great; it draws you right in. Yeah, no, I I, I really enjoyed it overall. It's a, it's a very touching story, and and like I said, the performances are great. And it, yeah, I was I was blown away by it. That's awesome. Yeah, when you because you gave it a perfect score, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah, I, I gave it a ten out of ten or five five stars on Letterbox. But yeah, I. Uh, Cause I, I just, as I was watching it, I, I couldn't look away and I just loved the story. It sucked me right in, you know, so many like tender moments and stuff. And I just, yeah, I, uh, I slept on that one for a while and yeah, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. Good, good. I'm glad. Yeah. I definitely, yeah. After I saw your perfect score on it, I added it to my watch list. So if I ever get around to watching it, I'll let you know what I think, but I'm very excited to check it out at some point. Yeah, definitely. No, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it for sure. Yeah. So the last movie I want to talk about is Collective. So as we talked about earlier, I'm currently going through some of the Oscar nominations I haven't seen yet. And Collective is a Romanian documentary that's nominated for both Best Documentary Feature and both International Feature. And the film is about the 2015 Bucharest Club Collective in Romania that caught fire when an indoor pyrotechnic, malfun um, pyrotechnic malfunctioned and the blaze of the fire uh, was heightened by a flammable chemical in the padding of the ceiling to decrease sound waves, um, and it set the entire room on fire. 64 people died, many more were injured, and a lot of whom died afterwards uh, due to injuries. 
Uh, and this includes four members of the band. Uh, the only surviving member of the band, I forget the band's name, but the band that was performing, two of the members died in the fire and then two of the other members died after due to injuries. So it was like a huge thing over there. And it's, it's awful. It, it just, it's been, and this movie, this really hit hard for me too, as someone that has gone to countless shows pre COVID, like in clubs where obviously like we learned, we learned from great white in the eighties, that fire that happened in that club in Rhode Island that killed a hundred people. So I think there was a, some sort of a rule or regulation put in place that, and I think in the States, that uh, um, indoor pyrotechnics like that are banned, but um, that just terrifies me. Same thing with the um, the Ariana Grande uh, shooting that happened. Uh, really hit hard for me when when something like that happens of such evil magnitude. It, it's especially hard too because um, there's footage shown at the beginning of the fire starting, and it's one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen in any film ever. Um, it's honestly scarier than any horror movie I've ever seen. Like like my jaw dropped to the floor, in, in, and then that like pull in hereditary bad sort of thing like i was just so taken back by what i had just seen sort of thing um but that's just the first 10 minutes of the film though and uh the film continues on and the um it uh, documents the pieces that the gazette in romania ran regarding the negligence of treating the burn victims that caused even more to die this boom this movie's really terrific in a lot of different ways because it one, it shows the power that I think investigative journalism and art have in the face of tragedy. And I think this film shows how pressure to demand more from public officials really does have an impact. The tone of the film is incredibly serious, I think, which adds to the authenticity of it all. At every turn, it's all business. No moment is ever wasted. There's no shred of doubt that anything is left undiscovered or unearthed. Finally, it's, it's just incredible how much ground this film is able to cover in just under two hours, especially when you see how deep the rabbit hole of corruption goes in this, um, how it starts from like the uh, the chemicals that they were using to treat the burn victims uh, to basically like, well, I don't, I don't, I, don't eh, I won't spoil it because I don't want to give anything away, but uh, the speed and how abrasive the subject matter in general might be a turnoff to some, admittedly, but this is a really terrific piece that I'd be hard-pressed to imagine anyone wouldn't be at least affected by. So, yeah, give this a shot. It's Like I said, it's nominated for two Oscars this year. I imagine it's probably going to win Best Documentary. I can't imagine the other four being as well-received as this, but, I again, I haven't seen all the other four, though. So, um, But, yeah, definitely watch this. It's It's really great. Nice, yeah. I'll definitely have to check that one out. And uh, what was the last film you wanted to talk about? But this one was uh, Anshan Adelu, um, which translates to an Andalusian dog, i.e. a dog from the Andalusian region of Spain. Uh, came out in 1929. It is a collaborative effort between Louis Bunuel and, and Salvador Dali. And I love Louis Bunuel so much. Like, everything I've seen from him, uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Simone of the Desert, The Exterminating Angel, Phantom of Liberty. He he dabbles a lot and was primarily known for um, doing a, a lot of surrealist work and being pretty political and, and having a lot of political undertones in his work, for sure. And um, just kind of pushing the envelope and being a little bit... Um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> drawing such a blank. And, be, and just uh, being... God. Con yeah, just being like kind of controversial, I guess, with this work. 
And uh, so Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali got together over dinner and they explained, both explained a dream that they had, which really messed, they both had really separate messed up dreams and they ended up collaborating these ideas to make a short film about it. So the entire film feels like a dream and it focuses on images rather than plot. Um, the, the plot essentially doesn't make sense. It's, it's almost like non-existent. It's just a lot of collective images and moments that are all strung together. The timeline's all over the place and yeah, you'll, you'll get through it and it's, it's only like 16 minutes long and you'll just be like, what did I just watch? But it's such a, but you can't look away. (laughs) And I, and I think I avoided it for so long because I, I knew the reputation that it had because it's, it was very, um, well, it ended up being actually very well received when they initially released it with, uh, initially released it, which they were even surprised by, which is, I thought was kind of hilarious. Cause I was looking at the history of it and, uh, Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali were at the premiering of it. And when it was well received by everybody, Louis Bunuel was relieved and Salvador Dali was actually upset. <laughs> like, like he, like he, he like wanted to piss people off. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause I remember, uh, Roger Eper in his, if all films in his Freddie got fingered review, he mentioned, I think he mentioned Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali, like their collaboration together, because he said that there was like some, there was some sort of a project that they worked on together. I believe, and I could be totally wrong. Go to the review. If you want to see for sure. Basically, he compared Freddie Got Fingered to a work that those two had collaborated on, and they basically, like, had created, like, this big surrealist sort of thing that was with the intention of pissing people off, and they were so worried of the reaction that they basically kept stones in their pocket at the premiere so they could defend themselves. Yep, that is that is this movie. Yes, okay, good. I was worried about that. Because I was actually in my notes, too. No, that was actually in my notes. Louis Bunuel had stones in his pockets in case rioters <laughs> that came after Oh, him. my God. The entire time you were talking, I was thinking, oh, man, do I bring this up? Because I want to make sure that this is the right movie, but I'm glad I was right. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally the right movie. And, yeah, so, like, they knew they were really pushing the envelope when they created it. And it's I found it so funny that, like, Salvador Dali was, like, like – you know, upset because he just wanted to like piss people off. But he was like, Oh, they actually like it. (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't my intention (laughs) pretty much. But no, I I think the, the history behind it is, is really cool too. Like if, um, yeah, there's a really interesting video on YouTube by film histories that explains, uh, I guess the premise and the history behind it. But yeah, it was filmed in 10 days. It took him like six days to write the script. It was very, opposite from what Louis Bunuel was doing at the time because he was working under a different director who you know was very calculated and strategic about everything that he put in his films and this was not that (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it was just I mean that's exactly what they were shooting for though and it helped pave the way for experimental film or avant-garde arguably the most popular surrealist short film of all time it kind of pioneered all of that and so I was really drawn to it for a long time but like I said I I knew that they really pushed the envelope and had a lot of disturbing and grotesque imagery in it. So that's kind of why I was like, "Uh, let me wait till I'm in an okay mood to watch it. But then I was just like, you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to be in like the right mood for it. So I was like, screw it. And I watched it during my lunch break. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That is one of the many joys of working from home is to be able to watch a surrealist 16 minute short film on a lunch break. Honestly, that's such a nice (laughs) feeling to have that right now. 
I, I got really productive after lunch too. So in a weird way, I think it kind of worked. Maybe I need to do that more often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's super good. And like I said, it's a, uh, it's only 60 minutes, not a long investment at all. It's on to TV for free. So if you, and you can, I mean, you, you just have to put up with ads every now and then, but you can literally just watch the whole thing there. So it's pretty great. By the way, we are not sponsored by Tubi, but I would like to also throw my hat into the ring. Tubi is probably the most underrated streaming service that is not like a free like that. Like, like, I don't know, like when you say free with ads, I immediately like throw my hands up like, okay, fuck this. But I love Tubi's selection because literally Tubi's film selection is the two for one bin at your local video store. Like you will find so many little hidden gems on that site. There's a lot of bullshit to sift through, but there are so many good films on that service. And if, yeah, if you can put up with ads or, or can find humor in like stupid advertising, then yeah, I would say check out Tubi because it is great. (laughs) No, I agree. And it's, it's a service I, I really don't use enough. And what's really funny though, is cause I was just, um, making the joke to my brother Joel the other day because we still as weird as it sounds we still stream probably about 80 percent of what we watch through a a PlayStation 3 I shit you not (laughs) and (laughs) I I forgot you still have a PS3 I know and it was so funny is because uh I mean it still works and it's functioning just fine but it's one of those things like yeah but it's one of those things eventually all of those apps are going to move away from the the PlayStation 3 it's only a matter of time before they shift and move to other platforms Apparently, 2B TV is one of them because I tried to watch it on the PlayStation 3, but I got the little message and it was like, starting January 3rd, 2021, 2B will no longer be st- uh, available on a PlayStation 3. Sorry Come for on. the inconvenience. <laughs> what the I was hell, like, damn Sony. <laughs> I guess I'll watch oh. it on my laptop. <laughs> I guess, like a simpleton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus. But um, I did just upgrade and get a Nintendo Switch the other day, so I am moving up in some ways. <laughs> oh, shit, what games do you have? I just got a Switch 2. <laughs> oh, no way. I just got uh, Pokemon Shield and Mario Kart. Oh, sick. I have Mario Kart as well. We should do some sort of a battle Oh, I am so point. down for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tight. Yeah, no, I got a... um. Yeah, I yeah, I, I don't want to go too far down the Switch rabbit hole because we could go on and on for that. But yeah, I also have a Switch that I got like with my I, either my stimmy or my refund, one of the two. So we'll, we'll go with refund. Yeah, that's so. that's exactly what I did. Um, yeah. So great minds think alike. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so I think that covers everything we've watched recently. Are you ready to get into our main topic movie? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. Um, again, if this is your first time Joining us every episode, Eric and I switch off in picking a main topic movie to discuss at at greater length than what we just did for the movies we've watched recently. So for my first pick, I wanted to pick something that Eric had never seen before. So I thought back and said, hmm, what have I raved about endlessly to Eric, but haven't gotten the chance to get together to watch yet? And my first thought was Fly Away Home. Uh, and if you have not heard of Fly Away Home... It is a 1996 family drama directed by Carol Ballard, who previously had had directed 1979's The Black Stallion and 1983's Never Cry Wolf. 
Uh, and Carol Ballard is definitely a director who specializes in animal-focused sort of dramas that really cut to the emotional core of its subjects. I think because humans have such a inert interest in animals and sort of develop like because they're the they're the closest things that we have to that are not humans that we can sort of relate to on a sort of connection sort of base level like a lot of people have pets like dogs cats horses what have you uh basically flyaway home is about uh 13 year old amy played by anna paquin who lives in new zealand with her mother until her mother is killed in a car accident with her in the car and after losing her mother, her estranged father, played by Def, um, Jeff Daniels, and uh, his name is Thomas, so if I say Thomas, that's who I'm talking about in the movie, uh, flies from New Zealand to Ontario, flies her home from New Zealand to Ontario, Canada, to take her back with him. And her father is an inventor who spends his time defending local wildlife. And after a construction team destroys a wetland near his home, Amy finds a nest of Canadian geese eggs that were left behind. And she takes them, she cares for them, they hatch, and they imprint onto her. So basically they think that, uh, the geese think that Anna Paquin, Amy, is her mother, uh, is their mother. And basically this starts as a story about taking care of the geese around the house, and it's sort of like a wacky, goofy sort of comedy at first. And then it turns into, basically, how are we going to get these geese to migrate south for the winter because their, uh, their parents abandoned them so they can't fly to show them the way. So her father invents a pair of aircrafts to help them migrate south. So um, I guess the first thing I want to ask, Eric, is what did you think? So overall, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was very endearing, very straightforward story. Not much to really dissect there. But uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, very, very nature focused. As you mentioned, too, I noticed was a similar common theme with Carol Ballad's other films. Um, they all kind of have that human nature relationship so i thought that was really cool too and even just the shots and the setting of where they were in ontario canada like some of those shots of, of um of like the the pond or whatever in the the trees and it's just they all had a very significant purpose i feel like to really show the landscape and the beauty of it yeah i'm glad you mentioned that um yeah the film was shot by caleb deschanel and the film was nominated for best cinematography at the Oscars that year, it was the only Oscar nomination it got, and it lost to The English Patient, which swept that year. And uh, yeah, this film is gorgeous. That is easily the biggest compliment I could pay this film. Uh, it's it's incredible looking. He shot the hell out of this movie. And uh, there's so many individual shots that are really memorable and stay with you. Some of the specific shots that I remember, uh, that first flight that we see Thomas, uh, um, Amy's dad, take in his makeshift aircraft at the beginning of the movie is really cool. Um, any number of shots in the second half of the movie as they fly down on their mission, the way that sunsets are prominently used throughout the film, specifically scenes where uh, they fly through Baltimore um, among the skyscrapers at the end of the movie. And they see those office workers staring out is so surreal. And like, that's such an interesting, beautiful way of looking at it. Just like such surreal sort of imagery that you wouldn't expect in something like this. And uh, the final scene in general, I think is really gorgeous with Amy flying solo across these large open bodies of water. There's that gentle touching down in the marshland with the geese, like their wings flapping in the, with the water. It's just, it's so beautiful. That is easily the biggest compliment I can pay this movie is that it looks fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree completely. And just thinking about those final shots and moments, like, and just the color palette with them too, it just has such those, those earthy colors and earthy tones with it. And it just feels so natural and organic and just makes you, 
just like happy. It's like it's like that uh, powerful bond that we have with nature, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, the film in general that's not about the film, but related to the film. Eric, what do you think of Canadian geese in general? <laughs> so I deal with Canadian geese quite a bit, actually, as funny as it is, because I I live right behind Hawk Island Park and I, I go for runs on the river trail all the time. And so they're always hanging out around the trail and it's they're they're awesome to admire from a distance and everything but thank you you can tell pretty quick yeah they i've been hissed at canadian geese quite a bit on the trail like you don't want to mess with them (laughs) thank you thank you thank you okay uh, here we here we go because I want to I still want to start there because every time I tell people that I fucking love Canadian geese it turns into this massive argument because everyone I meet hate Canadian geese for the exact reason that you mentioned <laughs> and it always st- I, I it always stems from someone having some sort of a traumatic experience with Canadian geese when like growing up with them and look I empathize that you were attacked by a Canadian goose when you were younger, but that doesn't stop the fact that I love them aesthetically. I love watching them fly over in formations twice a year overhead, especially in Michigan where we get tons of that. We get to see tons of formations in the spring and fall. And I just think they're beautiful animals. And the main criticism of geese always comes down to they're mean. It's like, they're not mean. They're protective. You probably just hate them because you were a stupid idiot kid that tried to pet a goose when you were young and it's right. And they rightfully snapped back at you. So yeah, geese are not an animal to be played with or provoked. They're meant to be appreciated from afar and admired. And that's why I like them so much. End rant. It's so funny that you mentioned that because it makes so much sense now. Because I remember when we were walking around Hawk Island and you were so enamored with the geese. And you're like, oh my gosh, there are geese out. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, yeah, they're they're geese. (laughs) And it it makes so much sense now because of your attachment with this movie. And and I will admit, after watching this, it did kind of put geese in a different light to me for me. And I was like, you know... I mean, yeah, they, they they can be a little bit territorial and you just don't want to cross them and everything. But no, I, I admire geese. I admire what they do and what they go through. And it, it kind of put them in a different perspective for me. I'll admit that. Oh, I'm so sorry. For, I'm so sorry for laughing. That was like the funniest thing I've ever heard. You say. <laughs> no, it's fine. That was so funny. You were enamored with the geese. It just fucking <laughs> destroyed me. <laughs> I'm so sorry to derail that conversation because <laughs> no, you said totally some really fun. nice things about geese. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, I, I can tell, tell you I'm just take a sip of water like, really quick. Yeah. <laughs> You're oh, just like, oh my gosh, look at the geese. <laughs> <laughs> like giving it like pet names like, oh, goosey goosey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I forgot about because you and I went on a walk, like, I think in the summer of last year, and I saw some geese, and I was like, oh, I love geese! Like, the same sort of fucking And, like, the back of my head, I was, I was just thinking, no, just admire them from a flower, just don't get too close, hopefully you know that. <laughs> Landon, like, avoid the geese, this is, this is not the time to do this. Oh my god, that was just so funny, I'm sorry. No, it's um, all good. So yeah, going back to this movie, um, yeah, just to give provide a little context, that's actually a good segue into what we're doing now. 
Um, so I've seen this movie at least 10 times over the last 20 years or so, and the film actually celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. So the timeline adds up with like when it was introduced to me, because I'm 28 now. So I've this movie has been in my life longer than pretty much any other film, aside from maybe like Jumanji and Toy Story. Like those are the t other two movies that I watched endlessly that came before this one. But uh, this film means a lot to me, and it was one of the first movies I ever really fell in love with, which is saying a lot. It's a film I used to own on VHS and watched endlessly with my sister. So, fair warning, my nostalgia is definitely affecting my enjoyment level of this film. So, if you don't fully connect with it on an emotional level like I did, I would totally understand. But as I've gotten older, I've only grown to appreciate it more and more. Um, I put this movie in the same vein as stuff like Searching for Bobby Fischer and Aquila and the Bee. Uh, these kind of timeless kids films that tackle more real life issues, like actual like experiences like this, that are more patient than your average sort of stuff for kids that isn't a lot of like bright flashy colors or catchphrases and stuff. They really take their time. And I think this film makes a lasting impact because of it. I, I don't know anyone that doesn't like at least admire this film for that reason. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it's funny because before I started watching it, I, I saw the cover of it and just kind of knowing the basic premise, I was like, oh man, this is going to make me cry, isn't it? <laughs> like, did it make um, you cry? I, okay, so I did start to get a little teary-eyed. Um, I had a soft spot for Igor and I worried about him. I know, I felt <laughs> the same way. I, I connected with, with him just so much and everything because I just thought about, you know, my, my own dog Pepper because she... Sometimes she's had a few like health issues and stuff too. And, you know, compared to like her sister Penny and like um, some other dogs mm -hmm. that my parents have. So she's like, you know, she has to take it easier, you know, compared to some of the other ones and stuff like that. So it just made me think about her. So it, I, I was like, oh. Igor. Yeah, I know. It um it really affected me too cuz something that I never realized until I saw this movie for this time reviewing it for the podcast. I always assumed that by the way, spoilers, we do full spoiler discussions for this. We haven't gotten to one yet, but just a heads up if you if spoiler alert for Flyaway Home. Basically when Igor, I always assumed that uh, when when the guy from the Nature Foundation comes to their house and tries to clip one of the geese, uh, like get their wings. I never realized that. Um, I always thought like Igor had the limp because that was the goose that he picked up and tried to do that. But I guess like Igor was born with a limp. He it wasn't because that guy clipped his wing. And I never. I always thought it was because the guy clipped his wing. But I guess that wasn't the case unless I missed something. Yeah, I don't think so either. I I take it as like just something he was born with, like a slight deformity. So that's what I picked up on. Yeah, because when um even when like they're in the barn in that earlier scene before that guy comes to their house, he's talking with her uncle and they're like going through all the names, but she doesn't have a name for Igor who doesn't have the limp. And her uncle recommends that Igor because he walks like Igor does, like Frankenstein's uh, creator sort of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. All I was going to say that I thought was really funny, and it's such a small part that's not even substantial to the plot at all. But what I just thought was hilarious was the part um, where her uncle David was was babysitting Amy 
and he falls asleep and she sneaks out of the house, but he falls asleep to watching wrestling. And I thought that was so funny because of our lengthy discussion about wrestling in the last episode. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I was even going to mention, I wrote that down as a note of mine. Like, I'm so happy there's at least something, even if Eric hates this movie, I'm glad there was like a little bit of wrestling in it. So he could still like have like enjoy some of it, but I'm glad you still like the movie. because We got, we got just got to keep the trend going and have some sort, even if it's small and subtle, just some sort of weird tie in every episode like the like the superman in every seinfeld episode <laughs> oh that's a good point maybe we will eric maybe we will it's the start of something great <laughs> yeah <laughs> i want to uh go into another aspect of this film that i think is really great the music is yeah it's just one of my favorite scores of all time i don't know if like you had a similar in, in reaction to it but i think the music in this movie is phenomenal no i thought so too and it's it's funny because most of the time I don't want to say I don't pay attention to the music, but it doesn't stand out to me as much or it just kind of gets, I don't know. I don't want to say lost in translation with things or just kind of blends in with things, but I just don't think about it as heavily with certain ones. But Mm -hmm. I did think about the music in this one quite a bit. Like it actually stood out to me. That's good. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of subtle violin and wind instruments like to kind of help set the film, the, the mood of the film. And it works with the film incredibly well. Uh, The first flying sequence especially, I think, helps illustrate this when Thomas crashes and the music kind of subtly, like, loses the cadence that it was building. Um, I also love how the music in this film works in unison with what's happening. I think it's well-coordinated to, like, the ups and downs of flying, taking off, and failing. Flying, taking off, it works a little bit, then it fails. I think there's a lot of synchronicity with what the film is going for as far as its relationship to music. And uh, I also like how the film begins and ends with 10,000 Miles by uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Chapin Carpenter, one of the two. It feels like the perfect song because not only does it work sonically well, but lyrically, I love how a song like this starts with lyrics like, fare thee well, my own true love. Like she's kind of saying goodbye to her mother and um, the song kind of comes back in at the end of the movie as well after Thomas dislocates his shoulder and tells Amy to finish the trip on her own. So it's like she's kind of making peace with that earlier thread. And it's kind of a long thread to kind of work through. And it doesn't really come back in until the end um, when she's like flying over the over that long like body of water. And uh, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of good coordinate, like really well constructed coordination with music in general in this film. Yeah, no, I would agree, definitely. I think the, the music and the score worked really well in this one, for sure. I don't. Yeah, it's funny because I did some, some research on IMDb about just some of the makings of it and some of the facts, and some of it that I found really interesting because... So this is based on a true story of Will, William Lishman and Joe Duff's experiment on migrating birds. Yeah. And Lishman and Duff provided actual imprinted birds for the making of the movie, and as well as the actual aircraft that was used. So I found that really interesting. It's really cool. Um, yeah, it's um, basically what Lishman was doing was uh, Operation Migration was created, um, but st- stopped after, I think, like 2018 was when the program finally closed. Um, It was five years after he passed away in 2013, but um, basically uh, Operation Migration was an effort to reintroduce uh, migration patterns in Canadian geese and whooping cranes by flying them down in in an aircraft, and they basically, like, imprint onto the aircraft, and they can fly back down. The fact that Lishman worked with this organization, like, until his death—in 2017, excuse me, I I misremembered that— 
Um, it's really cool. And uh, Bill Lishman was actually really closely involved with the making of this film. He was Jeff Daniels' stunt double for the flying scenes, created the sculptures that Thomas makes uh, at their house. And uh, the film used Lishman's property to film the outdoor scenes. Obviously, the um, if you actually go online and look at Bill Lishman's house, it's actually really cool and like sort of cave-like designs and how it connects to the kitchen and stuff. So the interior scenes are a different house, but the outdoor scenes are actually Bill Lishman's property, which is really cool. Yeah, no, I, I love those uh, finer details like that for sure. Um, is there anything you didn't like about the movie? I wanted to ask you that. I feel like I'm almost nitpicking at this point to mention this, mm-hmm. but to me anyway, like uh, the the opening scene, you know, with her, her mother getting in the car accident and her being in the hospital, for me anyway, I don't know why. I felt kind of detached from it. Like I didn't, okay. I, it didn't hit me as hard as I feel like it should have, and I don't know what it was about it. I don't know if it was just the the pacing of it or the or the way it was shot or just the how quick and abrupt i'm not i can't really place my finger on it but for whatever reason i just kind of approach it with like a sense of detachment maybe it's because that's literally the opening scene and i have no connection with any of the characters so maybe that's why i didn't hit as hard i think that's a good point um i i love the opening scene i agree with you that it doesn't hit as hard as it probably could I think it's because um, the the song the song Ten Thousand Miles is playing over it, and we don't hear any sort of car crash audio. That I think was my detachment, if I had any, because when I watched this movie as a kid, that kind of didn't really hit me as like as far as like a big impact goes. I think it's because it's a movie for kids. Maybe that's why they didn't do any sort of harsh audio or anything of like the actual crash. Yeah. Um, and they just have the song playing over it. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Cause when I was a kid, I was actually kind of confused by that scene because I wasn't, I, I had that sort of detachment that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, but, but like I said, I mean, it's um almost like nitpicking and everything too, because I, I think it was it was powerful and had a lot of good messages overall. And I think one of my strongest compliments to it is its ability to be such a strong family friendly film that's great for, you know, kids and adults that has a strong message for both. Yeah, I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I think there's a few threads that I wanted to touch on that I think this film does really well. I think this film tackles grief really well. Um it doesn't really draw upon crying or like sulking well there's sulking but it's like normal progression of sulking in a sense i like how um it kind of ties in this film kind of ties into how amy processes the death of her mother uh she spends a lot of time in the early stages of the film like with these slower scenes with the score put to the forefront the shots of her mother pushing her on that swing in the barn like she kind of like goes back and has these memories of her but i also kind of think it's really interesting how Amy is processing the death of her mother throughout this film, and it she immediately takes on this sense of like a maternal role in these geese's in these in goose's geese in the, the life of the geese. Basically, <laughs> I like how that kind of a thread is placed in the beginning of this film. In that, it it basically gives her a sense of responsibility and belonging, and that's kind of how she copes is by developing this sort of maternal instinct and. Speaking of sort of parental relationship, I think um, Amy and her father's relationship is very believable. I feel like in a lot of movies, their relationship would be too yelly, too mean-spirited, and kind of come off as contrived. But it's played more low-key with Amy spending a lot of time isolated and alone until those maternal instincts sort of kick in where she raises the geese. And I think it also 
further explored when the shift goes from them raising the geese to getting them down to fly south. Um, the progression is very natural and it's well handled and uh, it, you never lose interest ever, which I think is really impressive. It's so funny because when, when you're just mentioning the relationship, all I got me thinking about was, so in my digging and research, uh, apparently Anna Paquin was also in Squid and the Whale and they had... I was going to bring this up. And I thought that was so funny because I saw that and they had a very obviously different relationship in, uh, in that movie. <laughs> Do you see the, uh, the quote or, or thing when they interviewed Jeff Daniels about it? Oh my God. I think, yeah, can you say the quote? I didn't write it down, but it made me laugh. It was, yeah, it was something along the lines of, like, like just don't think about geese. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, I it's thought like, that was it so It sucks because the Squid and the Whale is a great – I think you and I both think Squid and the Whale is a great movie. I think we give it the same score. Oh, I love Squid and the Whale. Yeah. Yeah, the movie's great. I, I like it. Um, I like – that's my fa- – I think I like that as much as Marriage Story. I think that and the Squid and the Whale are as equally good of each other as far as, like, bombback films go. That was just some odd casting that those two were paired together again, um, especially because Jeff Daniels plays a college professor and Paquin plays a student of his who's interested in him. And they like kiss and he kind of like he kind of forces himself on her at the end. Again, the spoilers for Squid in the Whale. We're going to talk about that. I'm sure we'll pick that movie at some point to talk about. Very uncomfortable, especially if you've seen especially if you grew up with this movie like I did. It was it was weird to think about. <laughs> no, for sure. And it was, it was something I didn't really give much thought to until i did more digging into it but i I thought that was so funny and just looking at the random facts about it too what i I thought was a a really weird coincidence i don't know if you saw this in your research so anna paquin going back to her who played amy was raised in new zealand and then moved to canada after her mom's death in the movie and in real life she was born in Canada and raised in New Zealand, so it was like a flip flop thing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And it makes me wonder, like, did because um because I read the I, I I watched some special features and obviously like the stuff with the family dynamic was just written just for a, the sake of a plot. I I think that must have been written around the film so that so that Anna Paquin's accent could be explained because if she basically would have had to put on an entirely different accent that she had than when she was a kid, basically, because she was 13 when they shot 13 or 14 when they shot this. So it would make sense that they would write around it so that she wouldn't have to put on a completely different sort of acting persona or accent in general for this role. (laughs) Something I was just thinking about too, because I'm going back to the point of, the opening scene not really hitting me as heavy as I feel like it should have. But after you were mentioning some of the points you were making about it, about it being like a family friendly movie and being able to process grief in an effective way, I feel like that was kind of the point in their tone almost to make it to where, cause the, the spirit of the movie is not like a sulking sad fest, you know, movie. It's a, it's a very inspiring uplifting tone. And I think that's probably why they, I guess, um, created that kind of atmosphere throughout it to where you're not really dwelling or or sulking over death you're just kind of moving on to the next chapter and doing what you feel like you need to do yeah absolutely another funny thing about this film was that i this is my first time watching this film when i realized this one of the critiques that i wrote down for the ending was i thought the epilogue seemed kind of tacked on and because of like um basically they they get to the marsh where they need to like get to the get to the body of water that's being protected against that um the environmental agency like if the geese get there by a certain time then they can they have protection since there's wildlife living there that have like actually like migrated there 
and have imprinted onto this marsh. So after that happens, there's like a coda that kind of pops up at the end saying uh, all of the geese made it safely and they all made it back to uh, Amy's doorstep, including Igor. And a little part of that I always didn't like as a kid was like, okay, I feel like they just kind of robbed you of a scene where they come back one where they basically like wake up one morning and the geese are all back and they're like crying and excited or something. But and I always thought that was kind of weird that they didn't do that. But until I actually sat through the credits this time. This is the first time I've ever watched the, through the credits. They give you that. Like she wakes up one morning and the geese are all playing on the ice and shit. And I was like, why did I never see this? Why did I always shut the movie off before then? Like that's my biggest critique of the movie pretty much. And it, it's basically solved aside from like, okay, it could have been a little bit more emotional, but still like, that's so funny. That's me. hilarious. And I think maybe like the, the Marvel times taught me this of just like, no, you don't leave till after the credits are all done. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yep. I didn't realize there were going to be a fucking Marvel post credit scene. Where Rick Fury <laughs> comes out with all the geese and it's a happy ending basically. <laughs> <laughs> right. Basically. I know it was, pioneering something before before marvel made it just a standard <laughs> the original mcu fly away, <laughs> fly away. <laughs> oh my god i think that, that covered everything i wanted to talk about i don't know if there's any other threads you wanted to touch on i think i'm good uh, i oh wait um sorry I, I did have a couple i think you already actually answered most of these so Favorite moment in the film. I know you were high on the the shots and everything. Biggest strengths, and and I know you talked about that earlier. Yeah, what? Uh, how does this co- compare to other films you've seen from Carol Ballard? Have you seen any of his others? I've only seen the Black Stallion, which I watched I think last year as part of my fifty list challenge, and I thought it was pretty good. I it didn't hit me in a big way, though. I think I would probably like this movie more if I wa- that movie more if I watched it as a kid. I think because I have. 25 years of seeing this film endlessly that it has been ingrained and imprinted, if you will, onto my brain that I have such a deep connection with it. But I did like it. I I'm like at a seven with that one, maybe a six, depending on like my mood. But I would like to rewatch it again. It is in the Criterion Collection, so maybe I could give it a watch sometime. And what was your official score for Fly Away Home? I had this movie at a nine for the longest time. And like, I literally watched this movie last year. That was my last rewatch of this movie was last year. And I gave it a nine. And then I kind of thought back on it a little bit. And I looked at my critiques of the film. The only critique of this movie that I think is kind of silly is that scene where they have to make that emergency landing at that air force base. And I thought it was kind of goofy that they were let off so easily. Yeah. Like literally like they basically put the whole, they put the whole air force base down on full alert, and they're like, ah, just don't do it again. Ah, it's okay. Let's take a picture with the geese. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of stupid. I liked it as a kid because I didn't like confrontation as a child, but now that I'm older and I want more meteor conflict in my stories, <laughs> I was kind of like, okay, th- th- that that seemed a little odd, but... No, I, I agree with that. And that was actually going to be one of my critiques, and, and now that you mention it, because I even thought that it was, it was going through. It was like, that just feels really campy and and just like they're almost forcing too hard to be like family friendly it's like that's not realistic at all but i'm just gonna roll with this i guess yeah and even then that's not enough to really like kill the movie for me if anything it makes the experience a little more if anything it makes it flow from one like one plot point to the next sort of thing so it doesn't dwell too much on anything but even then like that's not a big critique the only thing that ever stopped me from giving this movie a 10 was the environmental message i think that it's a little weird that they kind of have to 
get to this marsh by a certain time and the bulldozer is there and the crowd is there. But everything about that doesn't bother me now. As much as I want to call it out and say, okay, this is silly or goofy, I just, I don't know. It's gotten to be less of and less of an issue every time I've watched it. So yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time and every issue I have with it becomes less and less of an issue every time I watch it. So I'm going to give it a 10. <laughs> awesome. No, that sounds good. And and yeah, obviously I feel like it's it's different because I didn't grow up with this movie and everything. And I'm kind of, you know, looking at it as a 29 close to 30 year old um sitting down and watching it for the first time and not having that nostalgia attachment to it and stuff i mean like i said overall i i thoroughly enjoyed it i thought it had a really strong message i thought it worked great as a fan as a family film and you know towed that line kind of to where it's accessible for kids and adults had a strong message well shot great color palette um you know, a couple of those those campy things for sure, but I think that's more so to fit within the, you know, uh, the family film category and stuff. So I, I gave it a seven out of ten. Definitely didn't hate it. You know, enjoyed it and thoroughly had uh, an enjoyable experience with it and stuff. And yeah, I thought it was a good, uplifting, cool story. Nice. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I think that this is a movie that one of those rare movies I literally could recommend to anybody. So if you haven't seen this movie, go check it out. I'm glad we both enjoyed it for sure. Yeah, definitely. No, it was a good pick for sure. Nice. Awesome. So speaking of main picks, uh, our next episode will be in two weeks from now. Eric, what is our main topic movie next episode? Yeah. So I guess going with the theme, like you were mentioning before about, um, cause I wanted to pick something that you haven't seen and something that I feel like you would I, that we could at least have a good conversation about, if anything, even if you didn't like it or <laughs> anything like that. So so for the next episode, I'm choosing Joe Dante's 1993 film Matinee. And uh, this one also has John Goodman in it, so I guess I'm already starting a pattern. But I feel like it's one of those that flies under the radar for a lot of people, and, and there's a lot to pick apart from it. So I think we can have a really fun conversation with it. I cannot believe how well the world works I cannot fucking believe that you just recommended that. I literally looked this movie up the other day because I, not this movie specifically, I looked up 1993 in film because I realized that I was born on a Friday and that's the day that movies come out every week. Like, I think they still do come out on Fridays. This movie came out on my birthday, January 29th, 1993 in theaters. I shit you not. And I put it on my watch list for that exact reason. So thank you for recommending <laughs> and giving me a reason to watch this movie. I can't. That I, is amazing. I can't believe that this just happened right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. It's so funny because I, I was originally going to go with a completely different thing all movie i'll save for later obviously and i won't spoil it but um for whatever reason this movie popped in my head because i watched it a few years ago had a lot of fun with it and like i want to revisit it again just kind of um from a new perspective and it's one that i was like I, you know i feel like we could have a great conversation about it and it just randomly popped in my head and then i i checked letterbox to verify you haven't seen it yet but what's so funny is that i think in between the time i noticed that you hadn't seen it and when I just went on randomly again, I saw that it was on your watch list, which I think you added in between or something. Yep. So that that's hilarious that you like just added it. I literally added this movie to my watch list like a week, maybe less than a week ago. That is so funny. <laughs> and I was, I was, yeah, like I said, I was looking at it and I was like, 
I don't think that was there before. I was like, oh, but clearly he wants to see it, so this will be a this will be a good pick. <laughs> I'm psyched as hell to watch this movie now, and I I love me some Joe Dante, and I obviously love John Goodman, so I'm very psyched to check this out. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to have a conversation about that one and, and revisit it myself because. Yeah, it's been a few years, and I've been I've been wanting to, to give it another watch. So, if you don't want to be spoiled for Joe Dante's nineteen ninety three film Matinee, watch it before the next episode. We put these episodes out every two weeks, and yeah, that is all we have for this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at films underscore void, and you can follow me on Twitter at I got Man. And Eric, you are not a huge Twitter connoisseur, but what would you like to plug? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my Twitter exists if you would want to follow it. Um, Eric with the hair. But yeah, to your point, I'm not as active on Twitter, unfortunately. Um, Instagram's more my thing. That one is Eric with the beard. Uh, Letterboxd, I'm very active on. Uh, that one is Eric with the hair as well. And I do have a podcast called Juxtapose Journeys that's on another podcast that's on Spotify, um, Apple, pretty much wherever you can get podcasts. Yeah, and then I, I have a website for it too, juxtaposedjourneys.com as well. So those are my plugins. Awesome. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at Landon DeFever. So yeah, that is everything we've got. Um, thank you all so much for joining us, and we will see you next episode. Take care. See ya.